It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through right it. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccine vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know, I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show, and uh, a good one in store for this uh, first day of the week. I'm Tom Sumner, and coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we have uh, Bitcoin expert uh, Christoph Ruick, who has written a, uh, a cyberpunk thriller called The Revolution Will Be Tokenized. It should be an interesting uh, conversation, to be sure. And we're going to talk with um, associate professor from Yale, Elizabeth Hinton, uh, on about her book, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. That's coming up in the second hour. But in the first hour... We're going to talk with the uh, author of a new book called The Sudden Caregiver. And uh, her name is uh, Karen Warner Schuler. That's it. I've got it. Had to, had to reach over for my notes, folks. But anyway, Karen joins me by phone. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine. Aren't the circumstances under which we find ourselves uh, caring for another uh, usually sudden? Um, 
Well, sometimes caregivers are, it's not sudden. There can be sudden moments. For example, when my mom was ill, my sister was her primary caregiver, and um, that was just a matter of aging and the things that happen with aging. So a lot of caregivers, I would say 50% of the 53 million in the U.S., are caring for someone in an ongoing situation. Uh, but there are those sudden moments when you're in crisis. Something happens, you get the call, you know, you have to run to the ER or um, take care of something that isn't right. In my case, I was, uh, I had no idea, and nor did my late husband, that he had stage four cancer. So mm-hmm. literally got a phone call in the middle of the night that, he had a bad back and it turned out to be um, stage four cancer. So we had no symptoms for to lead us to think that I would then become a caregiver because, of course, he was the patient and a care receiver. Now, how quickly did that go from diagnosis to really needing a lot of special care? That's a really good question. So in my book, I, I lay out caregiving in a series of phases because there is research that says that caregiving takes place in phases over time. But that first phase... Thus, thus, uh, <laughs> thus Karen, the subtitle, which I forgot to mention, A Roadmap uh, to uh, Resilient uh, Caregiving. Exactly. Thank you. So when I became a caregiver, we were thrust into crisis, the sudden part of it. And I felt like I was going to be uh, in crisis we would just go from crisis to crisis to crisis to death. But what I found heartening when I started looking around for some some kind of roadmap to help me was that we wouldn't always be in crisis, that we would stabilize, and it's what um, the doctors call quality of life. I call it as normal as possible. So my roadmap is it spells the word care, crisis, as normal as possible, and you stay in those two for as long as possible, and then resolution, and then evolution, because eventually, as a caregiver, you give up the role because the person in your care either gets well, and that's a a phenomenon that happens often. And in our situation, because he started with metastatic cancer, we knew that at some point it was terminal, and our resolution was that he passed away. But... From, to answer your question, from crisis to losing him, it was 18 months, but we spent the majority of time in as normal as possible. We never got back to normal, but we really enjoyed that time of life when he was in treatment, he was doing well, he was resuming his work, and I was able to resume my work. And that period, we probably, that was, that was, probably out of the 18 months, I would say 14 months of we were good, we were in good shape. And Karen, I mentioned the, uh, the book is uh, called The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving um, by Karen Warner Schuler. I didn't mention, Karen, the, uh, the letters after your name, M-A-P-P. What do those stand for? Oh, thank you for asking that. So I, just before I became a caregiver, 
uh, which happened in 2014. I graduated, I got my master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, and I studied with the person who is considered the founder or the father of positive psychology, Martin Seligman. So MAPP stands for Master of Applied Positive Psychology. And that actually is why I can write a book about resilience and caregiving, not just how difficult caregiving is, but to actually build a practice of resilience so that you can be in your best shape and in your best condition and best frame of mind to help the person in your care. You know, for a lot of people who find themselves in that situation, caring for a loved one, a, a parent, a child, a spouse, as in your case, um, you know, they'll, they'll share the story, but, but somewhat reluctantly and, and with a very small circle. What made you decide to write a book about your experience? Well, as I mentioned earlier, when I started looking at caregiving, it, there are millions, 53 million caregivers in the U.S., according to AARP, and 11% of the, the populations of developed countries. So there's a lot of us. And I at first thought, well, someone has figured this out and will tell me what to do. And that was a fantasy I, had, I held for about two months, and then I realized uh, it's up to me. I have to figure this out. And when we figure things out as caregivers, they're really very specified to the situation we're in. But the reality is that all caregivers share, while our disease states, our patients, the people in our care are, are quite different, we share common um, phenomenon that we have to deal with. And, and a lot of it has to do with the toll that caregiving takes on us and our own self-care. So I just, I'm, my late husband was the writer in the family. He had published 20 books and he was, he wrote about the, the economy, the, the world. He was very much at a, at a global level. And I had always aspired to, I was an English major in college. So I was always, had always considered myself a good writer. And I had watched him so many times create books that were published to help people think through major problems in the world. So I thought, well, this is what I can do. In order to continue his legacy, I was not going to write a book about economics to continue his legacy, but I could certainly write a book that would help caregivers who are coming up behind me so I could hold a light up for them. In the, in the process of, of doing the, um, the book, how much of it draws on your own experience and how much of it is based on, on research that you did before and since you were charged with being a caregiver? Well, my own experience is the catalyst for this situation, as I just explained. But what happened when I, I when I, when my husband first passed away, and I decided I would write this book. I, he and I had talked about it while he was still alive, and so I had started taking notes on it. And I was, I was all by myself, sitting at my kitchen counter with my dog at my feet, just starting to write a book, and. The first thing that happened that encouraged me publicly about this was that I received a, a grant from 
the University of Pennsylvania for my alumni association. And I thought, oh, I, I actually have to produce this book because these people gave me this grant to, to make it happen. <laughs> you were pretty much on the hook then, Karen. <laughs> exactly. And so when people began to realize that I was writing a book on caregiving, I got, uh, I would receive phone calls from people saying, hey, will you talk to this friend of mine? They just got a diagnosis. They don't know where to, to start, what to do. So um, as I, as I, since I, the catalyst was my own experience, but the book actually reflects all of those conversations that I've had with so many caregivers who would reach out so that I could just give them, you know, some pointers, some things to, here's how you get started. Here are the first things I would recommend you do. Um, and also to hear their stories because there are, for every single caregiver, there is a unique caregiving story. There, there is some overlap, but everyone has their own situation. The other thing, just one more thing about that is yeah. because of my master's degree, because I understood the power of resilience um, and positive psychology, I was able to create, as I wrote the book and I would assert something, <laughs> I would say, well, this is based on research. There's evidence. It's not just me making it up. So the book actually has 16 pages of notes and sources of those kinds of things that I would cite um, not only recommending it, but saying, and there's actually some research behind that says this will work. For example, one thing there's a great deal of research on is the power of just keeping track of gratitude, to be able to sit down at the uh, end of every day and say, I'm grateful for, even though the day was really bad, I'm grateful for these little lights, these little shining moments that occurred during it. And that that actually intervenes upon depression. So if you can find those two or three things or people in the course of any day that actually brought you gratitude, noting those helps you reframe. It helps you not go as deep into how difficult things are. Uh, Karen, when did or does the, the book drop, as they say? What, what is the uh, publishing date? Oh, it has. It was published February sixteenth, um, twenty twenty one, coinciding with National Caregiver Day, which is was that week this year. Oh, excellent! And and it's uh, available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble dot com. It's it's available online in ebook as well as um, printed book. And I am working on an Audible book for it because so many caregivers are in the position of not being able to sit and read. <laughs> not being able to just go off in a corner and read a book. Exactly. Um, Karen, I want to talk some more about some of the resources that you had and, and needed to acquire and and some of the suggestions you have for people in the book. The book, uh, again, is called The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving by Karen Warner Schuler, my guest. And uh, Karen, I have to, I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Absolutely. Great. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV, Our Voices Radio, ninety-two point one LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, 
we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Lion. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, 
where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we continue my conversation with the author of a new book called The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving by Karen Warner Schuler. And uh, Karen joins me by phone. Karen, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Thank you. No, it's, uh, Flint, Michigan sounds like a wonderful place. <laughs> it, it is. It is. We get a lot of bad rap in the uh, in the news sometimes, but it is a pretty great place. Um I mentioned that I wanted to talk about some of the resources, uh, as you were saying in the uh, previous segment, that for a lot of people, this sort of ramps up. You know, you have aging parents, and they they begin needing more and more gradually over time. But um, there are other circumstances where people become suddenly in that situation, as was the case for you with with an unexpected diagnosis. And, um, and, and of course, there are, you know, these, these tragic events, uh, accidents, and, and so on. Um, and and uh, I, I just, I, I wonder, you, you mentioned that you give people advice uh, in the book about what kinds of things they might need and, and maybe some of what resources are available and so on. But... What, what is the first thing when somebody finds themselves in a situation where they're now someone's uh, caregiver? Well, the first thing I recommend is to organize uh, all the practical things. And at least that was my experience, that suddenly you're wondering, where's our life insurance policy? Where's our, what, 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 insurance is going to cover the treatment that we're going to be going through. And because we don't, we don't think of it. I mean, 59% of um, people, adults in America don't really have updated wills and legal documents all lined up. We don't think about it until most of us, there are some really organized people. I was not one of them. We put it off until there's some sort of crisis. So the first thing is make sure that you are in a position where you have all your paperwork. You know what's possible. Um, if you have um, legal documents, if you have, we reached out and just pulled, got our our wills and our um, uh, just all the information that we had that would possibly fund a really difficult diagnosis. Uh, we were lucky, very, very lucky, because we had savings and we had insurance. But those things are, if you're a caregiver, all of a sudden, the, the last thing you want to do is be worried about, and caregivers are notoriously worried about resources, money, time. Um, but to get, organize that for yourself right away, that's the first thing, and that's really externally focused, obviously. But then, then to start thinking about your own resilience. How are you going to find the time? How, how are you going to, what, what impact will this have on your work, for example? 
Um, I mentioned earlier my younger sister, Ellen, who happened to live closest to my mom. My mother passed in February from COVID, but mm. before that, my, my sister cared for her, um, and it was a daily thing. She'd stop by at the end of the day after work. Um, so that's an ongoing situation, but then there would be those days when she'd have to call in and say, I can't come in, I need to take my mom to the emergency room, and uh, that is a phenomenon of caregivers that we're constantly negotiating with our places of business if we do work outside the home to make sure that we, people understand the circumstance we're in and can be flexible and allow us that sort of grace with our jobs. In my case, my husband was, um, you know, he was gainfully employed and we had a two-income life and lifestyle. So if he was no longer going to be able to work, how are we going to do that? So those are the externally focused things. And once we realize that um, we have to negotiate some aspects of our lives, the second thing I recommend is that people line up their friends, community members, volunteers, anyone that can do things with them and for them that they can't do for themselves. So I recommend making a list of the things that you're not good at or don't want to do and then matching them to people in your life who love you, who you love, and not the people in your life who want to help but they don't know what to do and if they show up, they're going to make more work but the people that you know for sure, if someone needed a ride in the middle of the night, you'd be able to call and, and get that help. Um, and I call that creating your care-leading squad. Uh, and to also line up all of these things are do it before you're in the next crisis. So it's just very practical things. When was your husband diagnosed with, uh, with his cancer? He was diagnosed in, in late September 2014. And then, um, I, I, I don't know how to ask this delicately, but then how long did he have before he finally passed away? He, 18 months. So he passed away in April of 2016. And as I said, most of that time we were fairly stable once we got through that original crisis. So for us, um, we, were we have adult children and they had launched and they were fine and we weren't worried about them anymore. And, you know, we took a trip to Rome in June, our first really carefree vacation, and there was no sign of cancer at all. Like I look at the photo that I took of my husband when we were sitting in a cafe in Rome um, having we had just toured the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel, and um, and I stare at that photo all the time and say, "Where's the cancer?" Because you cannot see it. He was fine, and yet three months later, uh, we got. I got a call. I'm an executive coach, and I traveled quite a bit, especially before COVID, for my work. And I was on site with a client, and he called me and said, "I've just been told I have stage four cancer," and I could not even believe, I did not believe it. I thought, that's a mistake. Uh, let me get on a plane. Let me get back there. Let me straighten this all out. Um, and it turned out to be not a mistake. So 
Um, so we were in that crisis, getting his pain stabilized, getting him treatment, getting the calendar set up, all those pragmatic things I just talked about, uh, making sure that the people in our world who needed to be on, you know, to come visit and stay with us and making sure the family understood how they could support us. And then eventually, once he began chemo, he the pain got under control. He was, he was feeling much better. And then we moved into a period of, you know, he went back to work. He, and we were both consultants, so worked when we weren't traveling, worked out of our, our home offices. And he was fine. He resumed that he published a couple of magazines and he was, you know, editing those and doing a really good job and, um, and did that. He worked pretty much until he couldn't um, within months of, of his passing. But he was, that was an important part of his life and that important part of his identity was being able to continue his work in, in that way. Now, were you able to continue to work or did you have to uh, put some limits on it right away, like, like the mm-hmm. travel, for example? It's a, it's a point, it's a bittersweet. Uh, it's a good question, Tom. So on one hand, I, as a caregiver, I think I was in a bit of denial, like, okay, I'm going to do this caregiving stuff and then I'm going to add, which is, you know, on average adds about 20 hours of work to your work week and I'm going to keep my clients going. And there's a part of me, there were two things. One is I didn't want to tell everybody what was going on because that was really a private um, matter for my husband. Like he really wanted to manage the message. Uh, And so for a long time, I just didn't reveal this to my clients. I would just move things around. I did have to cancel a couple of meetings very much in the beginning. And I was open about why I was doing that. But I wasn't open about how serious it was because that was a request my husband had. And so then uh, what happened to me is, I mean, I'm a, I'm a coach. I'm a, I'm a professional problem solver. And if I'm pro- problem solving at home as a caregiver, I really didn't feel I had a lot of leftover energy for what my <laughs> clients really needed from me. So I, um, I was able to manage to you know, have a very serious conversation with a, a select group of clients. The poignant part or the really special part to me is that some of those clients recognized how hard I, they've been my clients for so long. They, they were on my team in a way, and they, they knew that at some point when I came up for air, I would need work. And they were really kind in reaching out to me and saying, you know, I've got this thing, would you mind coming? And eventually I was able to resume a little bit of the travel, but I didn't want to, I, I think the message here is I didn't want to work the way I had been working and I didn't want to be away from my husband. I actually wanted to be the caregiver more than I wanted to be the consultant at that point. And and what kinds of, of physical or infrastructure things did you have to arrange? I mean, were there were there stairs that, that at some point couldn't be negotiated? Did you have to move you know, bedrooms around and and that sort of thing? Ultimately, we did. In the beginning, it was very important. I mean, in my book, I talk about 
maintaining the identity of of the person in your care, right? So their identity is defined by them. And for my husband, it was, we're going to treat this as if I'm not dying. We're not talking about dying. We're just going to be, how do we mitigate the circumstances so that we can be productive and live our life as normally as possible. And so um, we did, we bowed to the things we had to, like cancer treatments every three weeks, where we had to be in order to do that. We had a home in Boston, and he was being treated at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which is an amazing institution. And so we just put that in place to be able to do that. Then um, physically, he was, you know, he took more naps, but he was fine. He could, we went to restaurants. We, you know, he, he was tired a lot because of the chemo. So, um, but he actually did some, he's a, keynote speaker, he did some speaking, and he did a little bit of traveling. It wasn't until what I call the resolution phase was upon us, where I could see a downturn in his productivity, in his engagement. Um, He knew he was, there was a point at which the treatment wasn't working anymore, and he knew it, but didn't really, you know, we had to be told by the doctors that that was the case. He did not give in to it. And at that point, we, um, staying up on, you know, he, he would, I would fall asleep, you know, we'd just go to bed at regular time, I'd fall asleep, and then I'd wake up and he wouldn't be there. And that started concerning me. So we were able to get help to come in, nurses' aides to come in and in the evening so that I could get my sleep. And then I would take over during the day. And then we became afraid of him climbing stairs, so we moved the bedroom to the downstairs. But that was really in the last three months of his life that we had the physical um, uh, compromises that we had to make. And how old was your husband when he died? He was 69. He was just shy of his 69th birthday. Um. I, you know, as as you've been talking about some of the things, um, you know, organizing people around you and, and some of the conditions, um, you know, suspending work and, you know, trying to work for as long as you could and so on. Um, and you said you had some, some savings and, and I'm sure you had, you know, good health care insurance and so on. But for a lot of people... You know, a four hundred dollar emergency can wipe them out, and and yet they still face these same kinds of issues and diagnoses. Um, did did you learn and or share um, some resources for people that are are having a tough time with the finances of caregiving and and uh, a debilitating illness? Oh, it's, Tom, that you're on the sweet spot of the issue here, which is we do not have an organized way of helping caregivers provide care at this moment. And there are a lot of people trying to work on that in terms of legislation and just, you know, having a safety net for caregivers and their care receivers. Because one of the first things that can go is your income. And... um so it is, I, I wish I had the silver bullet for this, but there are a few things that you can consider. And 
I don't think caregivers really understand, or I certainly didn't appreciate the degree to which my community provided services. I would love to tell you, you can go to one office and sit down with them, tell them your problems, and they'll go, here, we'll, we'll just take care of this. That doesn't exist. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. But what I did do, because I, rec I recognized halfway through writing my book how, as I spoke with caregivers, how lucky I really was that we were, you know, as I say, we were old. We had, I had been working since I was 12, so we were both good savers and we were lucky in our incomes and uh, we did, as you say, have good health care. And, and had my husband gotten cancer 10 years earlier, that might not have been the case because Medicare really paid for quite a bit of it, all of it. Um, but on my website, because I was recognizing that this was an issue that, and I don't have one answer, but I did put a resources page on my website. And depending on your disease state, for example, Alzheimer's, you can go to the, the Alzheimer's Association and look at their website and some of the resources that they might offer caregivers. Um, they all have some sort of education component to them uh, to help people who are actually caregiving for people with Alzheimer's dementia and things like that. Um, cancer has its own set of uh, the American Cancer Society. Um, the PBS has a lot of resources that if you're just looking for a one-stop shop, if you, I think I have the link on my website as well, you can see kind of for your disease state, your circumstance, your financial situation. Veterans, if, if the person in your care happens to be a veteran, there are, um, there are, um, resources available there that you can apply for. But there is by no means one place where you say, hey, I'm a caregiver. This is my income. Can you, is there a subsidy? There's no one place. You have to put it together yourself. Um, the other thing is in your own community, and I didn't realize this, I was paying for so much out of my pocket. I would go, the doctor would say, you know, when you talk about physical equipment, the doctor would say, you need this kind of Thing for the bathtub so that you can have a shot. So I'd go out and I'd buy it and I'd have someone install it out of my own pocket. And then at one point, one of the volunteers who came to, to our home after, uh, after my husband had surgery, and she said, why are you not just going to the Council on Aging? They're right around the corner and all of this is free. And it's a wonderful thing that they make available because as you're aging and you have, say, a walker or a cane or a special something for the shower, they, so many other people have experienced that, have purchased those things, and they donate them because at the end you don't need them anymore. And then people like me can go and find them out and use them for as long as you need to use them. And that, you know, there's, a, there's an estimate that caregiving takes about $5,000 you weren't expecting to spend out of pocket. It's not, you can't get it back from insurance. Um, and I think that's probably low, a low number. But there are resources in your community that understand that. And I would not, I'd start at the local hospital um, and I would Google caregiving and the name of your local hospital here it's Beaufort Memorial so caregiving Beaufort Memorial and the 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 
social services and the volunteer services and the kind of community services that are available, that's a good place to start. You'll start seeing some of those things. And you make one phone call and they recommend something else and you make that and it goes from there. How much of, of writing this book was, was cathartic for you and, and how much of it was, I, I, I really want to let people know what they're in for. Well, I, well, that's a good way to put it. I would say people grieve in all different ways, which I talk about at the end of my book in the, the, the phase evolution. After I've lost my husband, I have to move back into life after caregiving. And it's profoundly changed. It's a hero's journey. You get back to the beginning and you're not the same person. And so what lessons do you integrate into your life like that but what I what I think is um, most important is I used I didn't know I was doing this but the book was a good substitute for the grieving process or it was a way to grieve I should say it wasn't a substitute because writing a book like the book I wrote was so hard because you're reliving oh of course um, right but it's not just about my story so that was that there's a part of me that said i can really help people with this and it's the to me the most important part of the book i wrote the book is is um separated into three parts part one is that resilience builder what are the pathways to well-being part two is so that's how to be a caregiver like how to shore yourself up for caregiving the second part is how to do care giving, and that's where I talk about my C-A-R-E care roadmap. And the third part is how, what, you know, what have you learned as a caregiver? How do, you, how do you go back into your life after caregiving? The first part, and this actually connects to the question that you just asked me about, you know, how do people fund things and how, you know, what can they do? The first part, which is how to be a caregiver, one of the things I discovered that I found so heartening in the beginning as I started writing my book is that when caregivers are interviewed and asked what they, what concerns them about caregiving, um, one, you know, they all report resources, financial worries, physical, emotional hardship, um, they all, all that is true. And that, when you look at the research, the medical research talks about that. But what they say has significant impact, even greater significant impact, are more positive things like I'm closer to the person in my care. That wouldn't have happened if this wasn't the case, if I weren't caregiving. Um, I really am proud of the way I'm taking care of this person. I'm showing up in a way I never thought was possible for me. Um, I, you know, I, I wake up every day exhausted, yes, but also energized by the fact that I've got this mission that only I can accomplish and this person needs me to do it. So when you, when you hear those things, if you bifurcate the first group of things like resources and financial worries and physical depletion, all of that is true. And it is equally true as actually more more significantly true that caregiving actually delivers 
positive impact hey, to the Karen, people that are caregivers. Yeah. I, I hate to interrupt, but I'm uh, coming up on another break. Can you stick around for a few more minutes so we can finish up? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay, my guest is Karen Warner Schuler. The name of the book is The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving. And we'll uh, have more with Karen after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, but we'll be right back. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources.
The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. TomSumnerProgram.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We're going to wrap things up with my uh, guest this hour, Karen Warner-Schuler, author of The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving. Karen, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Thank you, Tom. Um, Karen, I, I want to give you a chance, you know, to, to share a few final thoughts, and I, and I want to thank you for sharing your story with me and the listeners this morning, but also in your book, which has been out for, well, three, almost maybe four months now. Um, but uh, you mentioned a website, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Uh, what, what is your website? It's thesuddencaregiver.com, so www.thesuddencaregiver.com. Well, that's easy. Good for you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and any, any final thoughts before we wrap up? I can't believe how fast the time has gone, Karen. I know. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, I'm on a mission to reach as many caregivers as possible, so if there's anyone, any of your listeners who know someone who is caring for someone, um, there's it, just know that they need as much kindness as possible. They may not ask for help because caregivers are notorious for not asking for help. If you want to help a caregiver um, figure out what your strength is and what you have to give, and then just give it to them. Um, the one thing that caregivers will say to me is, why do people always say, how can I help? Because it makes one more job for the caregiver to have to tell you how to help them. And, uh, and right. And so um, another piece of um, ju just another thing is that caregiving is, is about, it is a source of well-being, and it may not seem that way if you're a caregiver today. Um, and it's certainly, you're, you're hearing this from someone who had, if there was, it was out there and it was happening, it was happening to me as a caregiver. And, I manage to thread my way through and share some of these best practices that will help you have a good experience as a caregiver and, and have it be something you can look back on with um, accomplishment and pride. Well, thank you so much, uh, Karen. Again, uh, the name of the book is The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving by Karen Warner Schuler. Um, thanks, Karen. Have a, have a great day. Thank you so much, Tom. Have a good day. Take care. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons. <laughs> 
what's what's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potatoes? salad. I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find the meat for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. 
Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. Now you know what I got to say 
show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs> 